Today on the Cameron Journal Podcast, I am joined by Megan Daughter. She is the author of this really fabulous book on public speaking called The Reluctant Presenter, Forget Everything You Thought You Knew About Speaking. And this is very germane to me because I am trying to get my public speaking career off the ground. But most people don't. It's kind of become lore now, but most people know that people fear public speaking before death. They would rather go to their grade school in underwear, no homework, legs akimbo, than speak in public. So Megan's here to solve all of our public speaking fears, woes, difficulties, all this type of thing. So welcome, Megan, to the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you. It is wonderful to be here. Good, good, good. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how you ended up writing The Reluctant Speaker and maybe what your journey was in public speaking yourself? So I found myself in the unusual position of being a communication professional. I used to work in public relations at an agency in New York, and I did a lot of crisis and issues management, talked to the media all the time, and then I ran comms for a global Fortune 200 company. And throughout that time, I was really good at helping people who had made poor decisions or help people communicate out of a crisis or to help really technical-minded engineers and tax experts explain their work to others. But when it came time to put a presentation together, whether that was for the CEO or the CFO for investors, or if I had to go explain something internally, I just felt as if my mind hit the brakes. And so whereas I could be confident in how I wrote or how I talked to a reporter one-on-one, it all evaporated once I was in front of of a room. And I certainly didn't know how to make the most of multimedia visuals. And so, you know, I I got to a point in my career where I was like, I either need to hire someone on my team who can do this or figure it out myself. And so I started to go to classes and attend workshops and became kind of obsessed with why presentations are so difficult and why people fear this moment. And I loved it so much. And I started to see changes with some of my friends and a group that I volunteered with that I decided to open up a presentation training company. And I'm coming up on 10 years of that. So this book, you know, captures all of those things that I wish I had known early in my career. No, that's that's excellent. And I think um, I think it's so very now because there's so much more of that than than there used to be. You know, I think back in the day, you know, if you did a few presentations a year, that was, you know, ooh, a lot. Nowadays, it seems like this is everywhere. It's so pervasive, especially if you're in a remote work environment. You're now not even in the same room as people. You're doing it over Zoom or Teams or whatever have you. So, but with all that in mind, not relevant here. Why don't you give us two or three good points as to what makes a great presentation? Um. The things that differentiate the presentations that you think about later that day or weeks or years later, later generally have three things in common. And and this is actually content that I don't even know if it's in the book, so this is extra. One is the speakers have a focus. So if you were to ask me, you know, what is everything I know about public speaking and presenting, I would take far more than an hour. I would keep you for days, if not weeks or years, because I love talking about this topic. But when a speaker focuses on what's most important for this audience at this moment in time and has it in service of helping that audience, it it makes learning and solving problems so much easier. So one is focus. 
Two is that they reinforce what they're saying. So that might be with their body language. Um, you know, when people talk about charismatic speakers, I used to think, oh, there are people who do power poses and have outgoing personalities. Charisma is focused energy. So when you reinforce and you truly believe in what you're saying and your voice reflects that and your body language and your visuals, and you can share stories or data points that support your idea, that makes it more compelling and believable. And finally, the third thing that the great speakers do is they gently challenge us in some way. Um, you know, it is back to school time still. And I think we still have that mindset of, I'm going to give a book report and I'm going to get in front of the room and I'm going to share everything I know. And so it's all a test of what I know. But when we can present an idea that perhaps changes our audience a little bit so they can see something in a new way, that makes us think. And once you activate what they call that generative learning, that's when the elusive engagement happens and people think about what you've said long after that, long after that meeting. So it would be focused, reinforced, and gently challenge your audience. Yes, that <clears throat> no, it's it's there's definitely um I've been I've been working on writing a TEDx talk and landing okay. one. Yes, <clears throat> I've I'm working on a new political theory called individual collectivism, how we can use the power, our collective power to make change in the world. And we need to balance individualism and collectivism in order to do this. Um, and therefore that when people do well, society does well. These things feed off of each other. Um, and uh, I, I definitely, that, that last point is so good because I struggled with the, what do I want people to go and do? Um, because for me, it's really a mindset shift. I'm trying to get people out of hyper-individualistic neoliberalism that we've had since the 50s, thank you, Cold War, to this more, you know, group society-centered so sort of mindset. And so that um, that presenting a challenge bit, I think, depending on the type of talk you're giving can be uh, incredibly difficult, but it's also very important because I think that's what people take with them on the car ride home. Like that's the test <laughs> of a good movie. Do you talk about it on the way home? It, you know, it's like, that's what goes with them. So mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly vital and incredibly important. So how, what are some things people can do to kind of get that going in terms of getting people challenged to do something? Um, you know, and I, I would, I almost want to ask you a question, even though you're the interviewer, like what's keeping you from giving this TEDx talk? <laughs> I, you know, I genuinely, it's funny, I genuinely don't know. So I've, I've been working with a program called Thought Leader. They've coached me through the whole thing. It has been a year and just nobody has, has taken it yet. Um, one of the downsides of our highly partisan political environment is event people are very nervous about booking politics mm -hmm. because whatever you do, there's a good chance you're going to turn off 48 to 52% of the room. And so I think, and, and it's kind of funny because I don't really care what your politics are. You know, I just want you to go out and do things together in a group and help make society better not just your own individual life better. What you bring to that politically is up really up to you. 
Um, but it's still there's an I think there's a lot of nervousness. And I've I've put myself out to agencies and different things. And I have other talks I do like on our changing America, where I help business leaders navigate America's demographic changes because the country's mm-hmm. changing. We'll no longer be majority white by the end of the 2040s sort of thing. And that has wide implications for marketing polling, market research, you know, if you're not producing communications in at least the three major languages spoken in this country, you're losing one third to two thirds of your potential customers. So marketing department, you need to hire some people who speak Spanish because guess who the biggest minority is in this country? Hispanic people and a lot of them still speak Spanish at home or they're bilingual, which means you could reach them in a multiple, like this has wide implications, but because it gets into these sensitive topics, people really struggle kind of booking this stuff. So I've I've had difficult, that's where I think my difficulty has come from with that. So, you know, one of, and hearing you talk about that, it's going to make them nervous. You know, I would think about this almost of how do we gently challenge those event organizers and own that conflict, that dissonance up front and say, look, the, the topic I want to talk about is going to make, you know, if I've done my job, over half of the people squirm a little bit. And that's by design, because until we get comfortable with that discomfort, we're not going to change as a society, as a culture, as a country. And here's why. I mean, you're, you're gently challenging already. Like, if I'm a marker, I'm already thinking like, oh, I better brush up my Spanish skills if I want to talk about my company's work. So I think, you know, you're right on that gently challenging. And so often I hear speakers kind of bury that challenging part because they want to be polite. They want to play the game. You know, in corporate America, everyone has rules that are written or unwritten that we're playing by. And so often people will bury the good insight or that, you know, slightly provocative idea because they want to be cautious. They want to keep their job. But once you can at least figure out yourself, the conversation that you really want to have and then figure out how do I float this by my manager or a colleague or by a, you know, potential audience member? That's where you find the confidence to find out, okay, is this message going to resonate? Are people intrigued by this? Do they want to learn more? Or is there a history on this issue that maybe I don't want to touch it? So it's more of how can you build those relationships and have those one-on-one conversations where we most feel comfortable to guide how you challenge and the content you decide to keep or leave out of your presentation. I think so many of us go to PowerPoint and we open up that file and we think that those prompts are going to help solve our problems. And, you know, those slides are an accessory if you need them at all. It's really thinking about what's the conversation I want to have. And most importantly, you know, what do I want to learn from my audience? I go into every workshop that we do and I, I tell our facilitators as we're onboarding them, You don't have to know all of the answers. In fact, we haven't done our job if you haven't been changed somewhat by a new question that comes up from from our speakers. No, I mean, that's that's one of the things I love about workshops over keynotes. I used to do I used to teach marketing for small businesses at this company called the Denver Merchandise Mart, which does did. It was the largest um, gift Re, uh, gift wholesaler in a five-state area. So all those little wow. tchotchke shops and Christmas shops, mm-hmm. this is where they came to buy their stuff. And huge facility in Denver was built on the old Broncos training ground. It was absolutely massive. And it's been there. 
it was it had been there forever when I was a kid growing up in Denver and I'm 35 years old. And so it was really awesome to go and be able to do these workshops with small business owners and say, here's how you do social media without it in a half hour a day. Give me 30 minutes and you can have a social media presence. You know, basics of Google, local, all this type of thing, because that's what really moves business now. And I would always that was my favorite part of a work. That's why I love workshops over keynotes is because I always love the person who comes up and says, I have this really weird scenario or this really weird situation where this thing happened to me and it gives us a chance to problem solve and like when i'm teaching a class my favorite part is when the students start ask, answering questions to each other and then mm -hmm. i just kind of step back because it's because the thing is like if you can help someone solve their problem that means you're getting this material too and now you're teaching someone else from your perspective and that's i so i totally agree with you it, it, it each it's like war each time you meet the enemy <laughs> You know, things will go different, things will go wrong, but that's where the learning happens and that's where you can accumulate all that and get new stories for the next people to say, oh yeah, I was in Wichita last week and let me, things are not going well in Wichita. Like, you know, so, and, and, and that can, you know, and you kind of get to bring that with you and that in my mind is ultimately what people are paying for, you know, in a real, in, in a real, in a real way. So it's, no, that definitely that definitely makes a lot of a lot of sense. So let's returning to your book because we've gotten off track. <laughs> let's let's come back. Let's come back. Let's come back around. Um, what uh, you mentioned PowerPoint and those prompts slides if you need them or not. I'm very passionate about PowerPoint presentations being fairly minimalistic. Mm -hmm. You should be the content, not your PowerPoint slides. What are some tips to improve people's PowerPoint presentations? It's know what the narrative is first. Know what you want out of it. Um, and I think a good starting point is figuring out how to write for PowerPoint effectively. So, you know, think about that headline on top or the, the title space as a headline. And if you can switch things from a title into a headline or ask a question so you can frame a message. So instead of, you know, Q3 results, it's we surpassed projections by 37%. Or, you know, what did we learn from this, this sales launch? That's a way of writing that's already active. It's not passive voice. So use the active voice, write questions, write in headlines, and see if you can connect that headline space from slide to slide to slide to slide. I agree with you. I'm all for minimal text because people can't read and listen at the same time. They're going to read and they're going to read way faster than the speaker. And we know that feeling of like if someone puts up a PowerPoint and it's 10 point times new urban font, all the energy just kind of goes out of the room. So you're like, all right, here we go. They didn't do the work of figuring out what's most important and I'm about to be overwhelmed. So really focus on that headline. And if that's all you have, that might work. You can put it in 42 point font and save, you know, save it for everyone in the, in the back of the room or, or, or on Zoom. Um, other ideas, I, mean, I like to say your font should be old enough to drive or larger. So 16 point or larger that can keep it clear. Um, one of the other things that comes up in writing for PowerPoint is as much as we try to say less is more, you want to avoid the staccato bullet points of trying to be too minimalistic. Uh, researchers at MIT Media Lab years ago 
were studying what audiences retained from PowerPoint presentations. And so they looked and they had like heat maps of where the eye went and they did all these recall tests, you know, weeks later. And what they found is that if there's something that's well-written in a sentence using linking verbs, people are much more likely to remember it than if it's too staccato. So you want minimal text, but you want it to be well-written phrases and sentences. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I think it's, if you have an image, make sure the resolution is great and go for full bleed if you can. The bigger the image, the better. I mean, I think we lose so much potential of images by putting three or four boxes or even more. And the audience is you know, trying to squint and discern, you know, what is this image for? When you have a great image, you know, make it make it life size if you can. Yes, I, I recently came across a YouTube channel of this guy that has all these different PowerPoint tips for being able to create these really great, almost like motion graphic television effects. Is it Tony? Present. Yes. I love yes. Yes. I, I, yes. <laughs> I, I'm I'm working I'm working on a new course, which is gonna be a narrated PowerPoint. And I'm looking at all those and being like, how much of this stuff can I incorporate? Because and the stuff he does with photos and all this everything is really Amazing. cool. Yes. And and the and is you know, and it's funny because you when I, I go to conferences, you can always tell the, between the people who did their PowerPoint themselves and who had some help from the graphic design department in their business. Because yeah. there are guys, especially the big corporate guys, they'll walk in with very slick PowerPoint presentations. They've had a lot of help. Um <laughs> and, and some people, you know, not so much. So it's yeah, and I think I think that it creates this sort of more like live theater, live television environment. And I think it draws people in. You know, it, it makes it easier to pay attention. So, yeah. Yeah. so good. So um, now let's return to the kind of the top idea of the, the reluctant aspect. People are obviously very afraid of all of this. We probably made people very nervous. We've been on for 20 minutes. How do people get over their natural reluctance to be regularly doing this stuff? You know, I did uh, a fair amount of research into why we feel that anxiety and, you know, it can show up for different speakers in different situations and it, it comes down to how we're hardwired to survive. So, because according to social neuroscience, we experience social threats, which is what is my boss going to think of me? And that's the audience member people fear most. It's their direct supervisor. Or what is this potential employer going to think of me in an, in an interview? The same way we would if there were a shark coming towards us in the ocean or a lion charging across us or someone were attacking us. And you know this threat response that we have with the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala is phenomenally powerful in those situations where you're being physically threatened because basically all your resources get redirected and all of your energy stores go away from things like executive function towards making you stronger, activating your cortisol so you're more aggressive. So that's why you hear the stories about, you know, the parent lifting a car off her child or finding some heretofore unknown level of strength and speed. Yeah. That is all wonderful if you're trying to stay alive. If you're trying to navigate some difficult Q&A or you really want to make a good impression and maybe sign this new client, the problem is if you have that amygdala hijack, all the glucose again goes away from executive function, which helps you do things like connect thoughts and words. Mm -hmm. And there's some 
research, I've not found the source, so I can't cite it, that you don't have, you lose like 30% of your vocabulary when you're in these high stakes moments. So there's two things you can do to better manage the situation because you want to care. Like I get worried about speakers who are just confident in every situation. Like you have to address some stakes. One is to focus on your audience. And the more you can get to know them as who they are, what are their incentives? What are their concerns? What do they want from me? They become more human and less scary. So you know, chances are you're not going to take the chairman of the you know chairwoman of, of the board out for drinks or, you know, go for a run with them, but you can do more to understand, okay, what is their role? What are the issues they care most about? And you do that by working your network, who knows them, who's presented to them before, and you take away all that fear. The other thing you do, which speakers are so hesitant to do is to speak, is to rehearse aloud. Um, you know, when, when I survey speakers and we find out, okay, how do you prepare for presentations? People always focus on the slides. Audiences don't really care about the slides as much. Um, they don't rehearse aloud. And the reason we don't rehearse aloud is we convince ourselves we don't have time. You always have time. Um, but because once you start to speak, you activate that fear response. But if you can keep on rehearsing, and it sounds silly, I always feel ridiculous when I am walking my dog around the neighborhood or I'm driving and I'm practicing my presentation. But when you continue to speak, your body and brain realize that you're not being attacked. You're totally fine. And once you get over that fear, that's when you can think, okay, is this something I'm interested in? Like, how's my energy level? Um, you know, how can I tweak this? How might I work up the phrasing or use shorter sentences? So get to know your audience, really think about them, empathize with what they're struggling with. And number two, simply hear yourself say, say what say your talk aloud. No, I don't understand people that aren't rehearsing aloud like that. I come from a background of theater and a background of broadcasting. So I've been walking around talking to myself since I was five. Um, So I don't, I don't understand people. Yeah, yeah. Like I, yeah, I just kind of, you have to, you know, absolutely, you know, be in, you know, in your living room doing it to nothing and no one. Um, But it is, I think the other thing, aspect of this that I think is so important you mentioned is it's an idea of practice. I just did, I just completed airing, it was recorded in July, um, a, a podcast series on fashion with my friend who's a bridal seamstress. And she's and she's I was like, oh, I feel so awkward and this and that and the other thing. And you're always so relaxed. And I said, I have done 156 episodes of the Cameron Journal podcast and I was on the radio for three years and all this type of thing. This is a normal thing. I've done it so much. This is not a normal thing for you. This is a very special thing that doesn't happen very often. So it's not, you don't have that habit, but if you're going to be doing this regularly, that's the type of thing you have to develop. And so that's where I think that practice piece is so important because when you start doing it, oftentimes, not only will you know your material really well, which is vi- which can is vital and also comforting, but then you also get very comfortable being in front of people doing the job. And that, mm-hmm. I think, really helps as well. That just constant practice. And it helps deal with, you know, technology inevitably is going, inevitably is going to fail. You will have a really difficult question 
you know, something's not going to line up. And if you're figuring out, okay, what am I supposed to say next? You don't have the cognitive or emotional load to deal with those hurdles. So it's, it, it helps you once you know what you're going to say, you can focus on reading the room and reacting to that furrowed brow and leaning in and be like, right, is there a question here or, you know, what's going on? And you make it about the audience. Yes. And I think people also appreciate that, that back and forth. I think there's a certain energy, any group of human beings is going to have a certain energy. Any crowd's going to have a certain energy. And I think the, the people who do it really well kind of dial into that. Um, and, 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 and sort of play with that and inside of that and kind of ride that wave as well. And even if it's a not very exciting presentation on, you know, marketing results, um, one of whom I sat had to sit through this morning. Um, you know, you can still, you know, keep it in keep it interesting enough and fresh enough by being in by being in the energy. So I think that is also also quite important. So excellent. So is there anything else in the book that we haven't covered? I feel like we've we've traversed so much ground, but yeah, what else is in what else is hiding between those pages? I'm between the lines. Um, you know, so the first part of the book is on mindset of thinking through, okay, if you're re- if you are reluctant, here's why. And so it goes into more of that science of why it happens. Yes, and then which is fascinating. Goes, You've done your homework there. I think it's a, I'm a book nerd, so I got to you know do as much research. It yes. also goes into um why people might not feel confident. The imposter syndrome. I was going to have that as one chapter. And then I was like, you know what? These are two distinct experiences. And then how to go about developing your presence. Um, and in a way that is authentic, that conveys leadership and trust, but you're also being you. You're not trying to pretend someone you're not. I'm I'm not a fan of fake it till you make it. You know, if you don't believe in what you're saying, why should anyone? Like we can't have this request for authenticity and transparency at work. And then, you know, there's there's so many TikToks out there about take beta blockers or use this drug so you feel more confident when you're giving a presentation or stare at a corner in the room or imagine that people have cabbage heads. Like you're there for your audience. So figure yeah. out a way to, get to know them and like them. So that's mindset. Um, the second part gets to, it also gets to agency of like why we hold back on having those, on giving, having the presentation we want to give. And then the second part is much more of a method of thinking, starting from small talk, Um, small talk and building those relationships in an organization at work is a lot more difficult. As much as I like the flexibility of hybrid work, we're not meeting our colleagues. We're not observing our manager deal with a difficult conversation in the same room, if at all. So this helps figure out, okay, it's actually worth investing in that small talk outside of the formal meetings, because that's how you build support and learn what's really going on in an organization. So it's primers on how to prepare for a briefing or presentation, how to use storytelling effective, how to rehearse. And then there's one chapter at the end that I was like, do I do this chapter? Is it a whole book? And it's, you know, what do you do when there's bad news or, you've done everything that you feel like you can to be a more effective communicator. And maybe it's not you, maybe it's the organization that you're in and maybe it's too toxic or it's not the right fit or certain behaviors are rewarded that don't align with your values. So it raises some questions to think about of, you know, over time, if you feel like you constantly have to change, it's probably isn't the right place for you. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I know that's, I, that's a, a, 
the whole thing with hybrid work i totally i i i think i think for most people it it, it is it's a hard sell because especially like here in the northeast once you get that commute time back you don't ever want to lose that hour two hours a day again you know mm-hmm. i mean it, and the mta is not even that nice um, and out here in the burb sept is worse. So like, you know, I mean, the, the people, I think it, it, as someone kind of pointed out, it's not the going into the office people hate, it's the commute, you know, mm-hmm. and especially if you live in a dense area, you know, on the, when I lived on the West coast, it was, you sit in traffic forever, you know, here on the East coast, we, we sit in traffic and sit on mass transit forever. Um, and so I think, but I, I agree with you, there is a lot of extraneous stuff being lost i remember i was at a organization and the me too thing had just really kind of popped off this is how many years ago this was and um and my my boss was an was a an older woman and i her and i were standing in the conference room and somehow it came up and i said yeah i was thinking about this morning in the car like early in your career what you must have gone through in the 70s you know, with all the misogyny and all those terrible things and blah, blah, blah. And she's just kind of like, oh, you have no idea. And it was actually this kind of really interesting, touching moment oh. of humanity and bonding. And it was just us in the conference room. Nobody else was around sort of thing. And, you know, and we just kind of got to have this five minute conversation of just being like, yeah, yeah, like I think about, you know, I think about that and all this sort of thing. Um, and it was very interesting. You don't get that over Zoom. That moment no. would have never happened in a remote environment, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and I do, and I think, I think presentations, like events and conferences and things. I, I mean, I love an online option, but it's just not the same. I love the going up afterwards, talking to the speaker. I mean, both as a audience member and as a presenter, you know, that sort of stuff. And you don't do that over Zoom. It's over. You leave. You move on. You don't. That's have when that. the good questions come in. The people who line up. Yes. Like, I want to ask this in front of everyone, but how do you feel about? <laughs> yeah, no, and there's sometimes as a presenter, I'll be like, "Oh my God, why didn't you, the whole room needed to hear this? Like, why didn't you say something?" Yeah, yes. No, I mean, I, but that's the other thing is in a virtual environment, that doesn't. There's no good way to replicate that online. You know, sort of thing. It's an odd it's an odd, odd thing. And it is very, it is very different. It is very different. Is there any particular, this is a very long, boring conversation to get to this question. A lot of real estate there, Cameron. Um, What is, do you have any specific tips for making online presentations as good as they can be given the format? Um, Push back on the format if you can. Um, I was asked to do a a webinar Mm. a couple months ago on personal branding not my strongest topic area, but I was like, you know what? It's a good idea to, you know, to get out there and practice. Right. And the format was 45 minutes with 15 minutes Q&A. And knowing that our attention spans are about 10 minutes, mm. you know, I am not that interesting to listen to for 45 minutes, you know, on, on any topic. And so what we did is I pushed back a little bit and I said, you know, we train our speakers to at the nine minute mark, make sure they're asking a question or they're switching speakers or they're bringing someone else in um, or, or starting a new story to keep that energy up. They've, they've done tests where they put 
heart rate monitors on audiences and it starts up high and then it drops off and it never comes back. So especially for online, see what you can do to, you know, do a checkpoint at the nine, 10 minute mark and create space for your audience to participate. Um, give them time, make it abundantly clear. We work with one association that pretty much did away with PowerPoint, except for cues on how they wanted their members to participate. So it would say, okay, well, we're going to discuss this issue right now. Chat, you know, speak up or, you know, take the poll, whatever it is, but be very clear. And if you're asking a question, count to 10 to yourself before you jump in and try to fill the science silence, because you know, think about your audience member. Your audience member is probably wondering, is this a dumb question? How do I want to phrase this? And then how do I get myself off mute? That helps compensate for the time where if you're in the room, you can see that someone's about to ask a question and you know to wait for them, simply count to 10. It's going to seem super awkward and weird at first, but you will be amazed at how much more engagement you get when you simply give your audience more direction of how to participate and give them time to speak up. Yeah, the the ch the chat thing I think is really cool. I was recently in grad school. I was doing my MFA in creative writing and I started that program during the pandemic. So I did two thirds of the program in pandemic and then the last third not. And it was, you know, when I first did eight hours of um residency classes on zoom i said you know i'm 33 at the time i'm like i'm 33 and completely exhausted how are high school kids doing this i don't understand um that wasn't so that i'm kind of like that's not great um but like the 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 only time i felt like we had those impromptu moments was in the live chat while something was going on and that would sometimes then questions would get pulled out to the main presentation and I think that interaction can be cool I think it keeps people engaged because it kind of keeps you know eyes on screen eyes engaged all this type of thing um I think and I think also digs of online streaming and all this type of thing people are kind of used to that as a format sort of thing mm -hmm. so I think that is very good but that idea of getting that interaction going at a very early stage is so very crucial that's good that's really good very very good and yeah nine ten minutes that yeah that's well the in television the first segment of a show is only eight and a half minutes long and then it's break for commercial interesting yes that yeah that's there's actually the the under the in the old days with network there were standard breaks you know and in radio, we had them too. We always had to take a break at the 15 minute. We always had to break, take a break at the 25 with five and a half minutes for news. And we always had to take a break at the at 48 minutes to for a little, for four and a half minutes before the top of the hour. And it, it's about that little, you know, eight to 11 minutes, no longer before you have a break to go to commercial and then come back. So um, that, yeah, that kind of makes sense to me why that, why that works so well and why you know that keeps people engaged so that's that's very good very good i like it well we have lots of great great stuff we've got to the part of the show where we do plugs and that's where we tell you okay. tell us where to find you online and where to get the book so why don't Excellent. you let us know do the plug uh you can find me on the traditional social media uh, channels like linkedin um i'm megan daughter d-o-t-t-e-r i also have a company uh portico pr and we're portico pr.us you can find my book there 
you can find it on Amazon. Um, yeah. Most, 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 most of the online platforms, but yeah, I, I will do more eventually with, with social media. I think once this book was behind me, I'm like, okay, now I will go about marketing, but you know, LinkedIn website, yeah. we've got a newsletter if you want presentation tips and um, Amazon. No, that's, that's great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you. It was great meeting you. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you.